Section 21 of Beacon Lines of History, Volume 7, Great Women, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. George Eliot, Part 2. The second of the clerical series, Mr. Gilfil's Love Story, is not so well told, nor is it so interesting as the first, besides being more after the fashion of ordinary stories. We miss in it the humor of good Mrs. Patton, nor are we drawn to the gin-and-water-drinking parson, although the description of his early unfortunate love is done with a powerful hand. The story throughout is sad and painful. The last of the series, Janet's Repentance, is, I think, the best. The hero is again a clergyman, an evangelical, whose life is one long succession of protracted martyrdoms, an expiation to atone for the desertion of a girl whom he had loved and ruined while in college. Here we see, for the first time in George Eliot's writings, that inexorable fate which pursues wrongdoing, and which so prominently stands out in all her novels. The singular thing is that she, at this time an advanced liberal, should have made the sinning young man, in the depth of his remorse, to find relief in that view of Christianity which is expounded by the Calvinists. But here she is faithful and true to the teaching of those by whom she was educated, and it is remarkable that her art enables her, apparently, to enter into the spiritual experiences of an evangelical curate with which she had no sympathy. She does not mock or deride, but seems to respect the religion which she had herself repudiated. And the same truths which consoled the hard-working, self-denying curate are also made to redeem Janet herself and secure for her a true repentance. This heroine of the story is the wife of a drunken, brutal village doctor, who dies of delirium tremens. She is also the slave of the same degrading habit which destroys her husband, but, unlike him, is a victim of remorse and shame. In her despair she seeks advice and consolation from the minister whom she had ridiculed and despised, and through him she is led to seek that divine aid which alone enables a confirmed drunkard to conquer what by mere force of will is an unconquerable habit. And here, George Eliot, for that is the name she now goes by, is in accord with the profound experience of many. The whole tale, though short, is a triumph of art, and abounds with acute observations of human nature. It is a perfect picture of village life, with its gossip, its jealousies, its enmities, and its religious quarrels, showing on the part of the author an extraordinary knowledge of theological controversies and the religious movements of the early part of the nineteenth century. So vivid is her description of rural life that the tale is really an historical painting, like the Dutch pictures of the seventeenth century, to be valued as an accurate delineation rather than a mere imaginary scene. Madonnas, saints, and such like pictures which fill the churches of Italy and Spain, works of the old masters, are now chiefly prized for their grace of form and richness of coloring, exhibitions of ideal beauty, charming as creations, but not such as we see in real life. George Eliot's novels, on the contrary, are not works of imagination, like the frescoes in the Sistine Chapel, but copies of real life, like those of Wilkie in Ten Years, for which we value for their fidelity to nature. And in regard to the passion of love, she does not portray it, as in the old-fashioned novels, leading to fortunate marriages with squires and baronets, but she generally dissects it, unravels it, and attempts to penetrate its mysteries, a work decidedly more psychological than romantic or sentimental and hence more interesting to scholars and thinkers than to ordinary readers who delight in thrilling adventures and exciting narrations the scenes of clerical life were followed the next year by adam bede which created a great impression on the cultivated mind of england and america it did not create what is called a sensation i doubt if it was even popular with the generality of readers 
nor was the sale rapid at first but the critics saw that a new star of extraordinary brilliancy had arisen in the literary horizon the unknown author entered as she did in janet's repentance an entirely new field with wonderful insight into the common life of uninteresting people with a peculiar humor great power of description rare felicity of dialogue and a deep undertone of serious and earnest reflection and yet i confess that when i first read adam bede twenty-five years ago i was not much interested and i wondered why others were it was not dramatic enough to excite me many parts of it were tedious it seemed to me to be too much spun out and its minuteness of detail wearied me there was no great plot and no grand characters nothing heroic no rapidity of movement nothing to keep me from laying the book down when the dinner bell rang or when the time came to go to bed i did not then see the great artistic excellence of the book and i did not care for a description of obscure people in the midland counties of england which by the way suggests a reason why adam bede cannot be appreciated by americans as it is by the english people themselves who every day see the characters described and hear their dialect and know their sorrows and sympathize with their privations and labors but after a closer and more critical study of the novel i have come to see merits that before escaped my eye it is a study a picture of humble english life painted by the hand of a master to be enjoyed most by people of critical discernment and to be valued for its rare fidelity to nature it is of more true historical interest than many novels which are called historical even as the paintings of rembrandt are more truly historical than those of horace vernet since the former painted life as it really was in his day imaginative pictures are not those which are most prized by modern artists or those pictures which make every woman look like an angel and every man like a hero like those of gainsborough or reynolds however flattering they may be to those who pay for them i need not dwell on characters so well known as those painted in adam bede the hero is a painstaking faithful journeyman carpenter desirous of doing good work scotland and england abound in such men and so did new england fifty years ago this honest mechanic falls in love with a pretty but vain empty silly selfish girl of his own class but she had already fallen under the spell of the young squire of the village a good-natured fellow of generous impulses but essentially selfish and thoughtless and utterly unable to cope with his duty the carpenter when he finds it out gives vent to his wrath and jealousy as is natural and picks a quarrel with the squire and knocks him down an act of violence on the part of the inferior in rank not very common in england the squire abandons his victim after ruining her character not an uncommon thing among young aristocrats and the girl strangely accepts the renewed attentions of her first lover until the logic of events compels her to run away from home and become a vagrant the tragic and interesting part of the novel is a vivid painting of the terrible sufferings of the ruined girl in her desolate wanderings and of her trial for abandoning her infant child to death the inexorable law of fate driving the sinner into the realms of darkness and shame the story closes with the prosaic marriage of adam bede to dinah morris a methodist preacher who falls in love with him instead of his more pious brother seth who adores her but the love of adam and dinah for one another is more spiritualized than is common is very beautiful indeed showing how love's divine elements can animate the human soul in all conditions of life in the fervid spiritualism of dinah's love for adam we are reminded of a saint teresa seeking to be united with her divine spouse dinah is a religious rhapsodist seeking wisdom and guidance in prayer and the divine will is in accordance with her desires my soul said she to adam is so knit to yours that it is but a divided life if i live without you the most amusing and finely drawn character in this novel is a secondary one mrs poyser but painted with a vividness which scott never excelled 
and with a wealth of humor which Fielding never equaled. It is the wit and humor which George Eliot has presented in this inimitable character which make the book so attractive to the English, who enjoy these more than the Americans. The latter, delighting rather in what is grotesque and extravagant, like the elaborate absurdities of Mark Twain. But this humor is more than that of a shrewd and thrifty English farmer's wife. It belongs to human nature. We have seen such voluble, sharp, sagacious, ironical, and worldly women among the farmhouses of New England, and heard them use language, when excited or indignant, equally idiomatic, though not particularly choice. Strike out the humor of this novel, and the interest we are made to feel in commonplace people, and the story would not be a remarkable one. Adam Bede was followed in a year by The Mill on the Floss, the scene of which is also laid in a country village, where there are some well-to-do people, mostly vulgar and uninteresting. This novel is to me more powerful than the one which preceded it, having more faults, perhaps, but presenting more striking characters. As usual with George Eliot, her plot in this story is poor, involving improbable incidents and catastrophes. She was always unfortunate in her attempts to extricate her heroes and heroines from entangling difficulties. Invention is not her forte. She is weak when she departs from realistic figures. She is strongest in what she has seen, not in what she imagines. And here she is the opposite of Dickens, who paints from imagination. There was never such a man as Pickwick or Barnaby Rudge. Sir Walter Scott created characters like Jeanie Deans, but they are as true to life as Sir John Falstaff. Maggie Tulliver is the heroine of this story, in whose intellectual developments George Eliot painted herself, as Madame de Stahl describes her own restless soul agitations in Delphine and Corinne. Nothing in fiction is more natural and lifelike than the school days of Maggie, when she goes fishing with her tyrannical brother, and when the two children quarrel and make up, she affectionate and yielding, he fitful and overbearing. Many girls are tyrannized over by their brothers, who are often exacting, claiming the guardianship which belongs only to parents. But Maggie yields to her obstinate brother as well as to her unreasonable and vindictive father, governed by a sense of duty, until, with her rapid intellectual development and lofty aspiration, she breaks loose in a measure from their withering influence, though not from technical obligations. She almost loves Philip Wakeham, the son of the lawyer who ruined her father, yet out of regard to family ties she refuses, while she does not yet repel, his love. But her real passion is for Stephen Gerst, who was betrothed to her cousin, and who returned Maggie's love with an intense fervor. Why did he love her? Curious fools, be still. Is human love the fruit of human will? She knows she ought not to love this man, yet she combats her passion with poor success, allows herself to be compromised in her relations with him, and is only rescued by a supreme effort of self-renunciation, a principle which runs through all George Eliot's novels, in which we see the doctrines of Buddha rather than those of Paul, although at times they seem to run into each other. Maggie erred in not closing the gate of her heart inexorably, and in not resisting the sway of a purely physiological law. The vivid description of this sort of love, with its strange agitations and agonizing ecstasies, would have been denounced as immoral fifty years ago. The denouement is an improbable catastrophe on a tidal river, in the rising floods of which Maggie and her brother are drowned, a favorite way with the author in disposing of her heroes and heroines when she can no longer manage them. The secondary characters of this novel are numerous, varied, and natural, and described with great felicity and humor. None of them are interesting people. In fact, most of them are very uninteresting. 
vulgar money-loving material purse-proud selfish such as are seen among those to whom money and worldly prosperity are everything with no perception of what is lofty and disinterested and on whom grand sentiments are lost yet kind-hearted in the main and in the case of the dobsons redeemed by a sort of family pride the moral of the story is the usual one with george eliot the conflict of duty with passion and the inexorable fate which pursues the sinner she brings out the power of conscience as forcibly as hawthorne has done in his scarlet letter the mill on the floss was soon followed by silas marner regarded by some as the gem of george eliot's novels and which certainly though pathetic and sad as all her novels are does not leave on the mind so mournful an impression since in its outcome we see redemption the principal character the poor neglected forlorn weaver emerges at last from the everlasting nay into the everlasting yea and he emerges by the power of love love for a little child whom he has rescued from the snow the storm and death driven by injustice to a solitary life to abject penury to despair the solitary miser gloating over his gold pieces which he has saved by the hardest privation and in which he trusts finds himself robbed without redress or sympathy but in the end he is consoled for his loss in the love he bestows on a helpless orphan who returns it with the most noble disinterestedness and lives to be his solace and his pride nothing more touching has ever been written by man or woman than this short story as full of pathos as adam bede is full of humor what is remarkable in this story is that the plot is exactly similar to that of germola the potter the masterpiece of a famous polish novelist a marvelous coincidence or plagiarism difficult to be explained but shakespeare the most original of men borrowed some of his plots from italian writers and mirabeau appropriated the knowledge of men more learned than he which by felicity of genius he made his own and webster too did the same thing there is nothing new under the sun except in the way of putting things after the publication of the various novels pertaining to the rural and humble life of england with which george eliot was so well acquainted into which he entered with so much sympathy and which she so marvellously portrayed she took a new departure entering a field with which she was not so well acquainted and of which she could only learn through books the result was romola the most ambitious and in some respects the most remarkable of all her works it is certainly the most learned and elaborate it is a philosophico-historical novel the scene of which is laid in florence at the time of savonarola the period called the renaissance when art and literature were revived with great enthusiasm a very interesting period the glorious morning as it were of modern civilization this novel the result of reading and reflection necessarily called into exercise other faculties besides accurate observation even imagination and invention for which she is not preeminently distinguished in this novel though interesting and instructive we miss the humor and simplicity of the earlier works it is overloaded with learning not one intelligent reader in a hundred has ever heard even the names of many of the eminent men to whom she alludes it is full of digressions and of reflections on scientific theories many of the chapters are dry and pedantic it is too philosophical to be popular too learned to be appreciated as in some of her other stories highly improbable events take place the plot is not felicitous and the ending is unsatisfactory the italian critics of the book are not on the whole complimentary george eliot essayed to do with prodigious labor what she had no special aptitude for carlyle in ten sentences would have made a more graphic picture of savonarola none of her historical characters stand out with the vividness with which scott represented queen elizabeth and mary queen of scots or with which even bulwer painted rienzi and the last of the barons 
Critics do not admire historical novels because they are neither history nor fiction. They mislead readers on important issues, and they are not so interesting as the masterpieces of Macaulay and Froude. Yet they have their uses. They give a superficial knowledge of great characters to those who will not read history. The field of history is too vast for ordinary people who have no time for extensive reading, even if they have the inclination. The great historical personage whom George Eliot paints in Romola is Savonarola, and I think faithfully on the whole. In the main, she coincides with Villani, the greatest authority. In some respects, I should take issue with her. She makes the religion of the Florentine reformer to harmonize with her notions of self-renunciation. She makes him preach the religion of humanity, which was certainly not taught in his day. He preached duty, indeed, and appealed to conscience, but he preached duty to God rather than to man. The majesty of a personal God, fearful in judgment, and as represented by the old Jewish prophets, was the great idea of Savonarola's theology. His formula was something like this. Punishment for sin is a divine judgment, not the effect of inexorable laws. Repentance is a necessity. Unless men repent of their sins, God will punish them. Unless Italy repents, it will be desolated by his vengeance. Catholic theology, which he never departed from, has ever recognized the supreme allegiance of man to his Maker, because he demands it. Even among the Jesuits, with their corrupted theology, the motto emblazoned on their standard was, Ad Majorum Dei Gloriam. But the great Dominican preacher is made by George Eliot to be the spokesman of humanity made divine, not of deity made human. Make your marriage vows, said he to Romola, an offering to the great work by which sin and sorrow are made to cease. But Savonarola is only a secondary character in the novel. He might as well have been left out together. The real hero and heroine are Romola and Tito. They are identified with the life of the period, which is the Renaissance, a movement more pagan than Christian. These two characters may be called creations. Romola is an Italian woman supposed to represent a learned and noble lady 400 years ago. She has lofty purposes and aspirations. She is imbued with the philosophy of self-renunciation. Her life is devoted to others, first to her father, then to humanity. But she is as cold as marble. She is a very reverse of Corinne. Even her love for Tito is made to vanish away on the first detection of his insincerity, although he is her husband. She becomes as hard and implacable as fate, and when she ceases to love her husband, she hates him and leaves him, and is only brought back by a sense of duty. Yet her hatred is incurable, and in her wretched disappointment she finds consolation only in a sort of stoicism. How far George Eliot's notions of immorality are brought out in the spiritual experiences of Romola I do not know, but the immorality of Romola is not that which is brought to light by the gospel. It is a vague and indefinite sentiment kindred to that of Indian sages, that we live hereafter only in our teachings or deeds, that we are absorbed in the universal whole, that our immortality is the living in the hearts and minds of men, not personally hereafter among the redeemed. To quote her own fine thought, Oh, may I join the choir invisible in pulses stirred to generosity, in deeds of daring rectitude, in scorn for miserable aims that end in self, in thoughts sublime that pierce the night like stars, and, with their mild persistence, urge man's search to vaster issues. Tito is a more natural character, good-natured, kind-hearted, with generous impulses. He is interesting in spite of his faults, he is accomplished, versatile, and brilliant. But he is inherently selfish and has no moral courage. He gradually, in his egotism, becomes utterly false and treacherous, though not an ordinary villain. He is the creature of circumstances. His weakness leads to falsehood, and falsehood ends in crime, which crime pursues him with unrelenting vengeance. 
not the agonies of remorse for he has no conscience but the vindictive and persevering hatred of his foster-father whom he robbed the vengeance of baldassare is almost preternatural it surpasses the wrath of achilles and the malignity of shylock it is the wrath of a demon from which there is no escape it would be tragical if the subject of it were greater though tito perishes in an improbable way he is yet the victim of the inexorable law of human souls End of section 21